and welcome back to Pan Am. I'm your host, Amber, and if this is the first time you're listening, then welcome. Or if indeed you're an old listener, then welcome back. For anyone joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about Paris, about the curious stories and unusual things that I find fascinating and that I hope you do too. If you know me, then you know I have quite an addiction to books about Paris. I can't even tell you how many I have, but amongst my collection, I have a very slim copy called Paris Walks, which is fantastic. The copy I have was first published over 30 years ago in 1982 by Alison and Sonia Lanz. So one day I decided to treat myself and have a wander around with my rather damaged volume and see what I could discover. I was hoping to see what remained of their Paris, to see if it had changed or whether it stayed the same. And considering that some of these streets have been around for literally hundreds of years, I was hopeful that not too much would be different. And on the whole, I found most of the points of architectural interest unchanged, as I suppose I would expect. They do talk a lot about the shops and cafes, and of course most of those have closed, and also they talk about the courtyards, which in the past it seemed you could access very easily, and now sadly they're locked, and the only way to get through them is by codes, and I'm just, I'm not that brave, so I I didn't venture in. They did, however, bring my attention to a subject of, well, to the subject of today's episode. It's a tiny, almost missable little carving with quite a story attached to it. So many Paris stories could begin with the same words, which are look up, and this is no different. So come with me and let's find out more about a little bit of medieval history hidden in plain sight. Saint-Michel. Saint-Michel. Attention à la marche. Here we are at number 42 Rue Galland in the 5th arrondissement. At this precise address, you'll find yourself standing in front of a small cinema. There are lots of delightful independent cinemas all around the 5th showing lots of peculiar or unusual art house films, and I highly recommend you check them out. You might find yourself the only person in that screening, or you might find yourself with an array of rather strange people, as my sister and I did one very pleasant afternoon. Here, at the cinema at Rue Galland, there are a variety of films which are being shown, including the Rocky Horror Picture Show, one of the very few musicals which I quite like. Twice a week you can get your time warp on and even dress up should you so wish. But let's tear our eyes away from the exploits of Brad and Janet and look up to where our story unfolds. Just above the entrance and slightly to the left, if you look carefully, you'll see a rather discreet little stone rectangle carefully stuck onto the facade of the building. Like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, this small sculpture tells its own story of a stranger turning up one night in inclement weather, seeking help, a couple, a transformation, not into a sweet transvestite, no, into something very different indeed. So let's find out a little bit more. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. This discreet sculpture, so small and worn that you might not give it another thought, is in fact Paris's oldest standard, or sign, and dates back to the 14th century. It's made mention of as early as 1380. Although it's carefully preserved, it's understandably overlooked. If it seems rather incongruous here above the cinema, that is perhaps because it was moved from its original spot outside the church of Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre, which is just around the corner. 
The Church of St. Julian is arguably Paris's oldest church and one of its most unassuming. Standards, like the one we're looking at right now, were popular in the 14th century. They were a useful tool for navigating Paris's complex streets and also letting the largely illiterate medieval shoppers know what goods were being sold within. This particular standard was either on the facade of the church itself or on a boutique close by. I cannot seem to find definitively which. Maybe it was a boutique in the church? In any case, the facade of the church was damaged, and hence why it had to be moved. Anyway, let us take a moment to step back from the crowded street and look at it carefully. There are two figures in a small rowboat, with a third figure standing up between them. Let us not dwell on their inefficient rowing, which surely would have taken them in circles as they're both facing inwards. Around their small boat, the water looks rather rough. The waves undulate in a sort of fierce way beneath them. In the background, we can see a small building, which is a hostel, which stands on the banks of the river, and a tree behind it. The figure's features have been worn away with time, and their hands are missing, but you can see that the two sitting down are looking up at the third, who's standing up and wearing a long robe, and appears to have a halo around his head. This is the moment that an angel, or Jesus, depending on which story you prefer, reveals himself to Julian and redeems him for his past sins. It's a spiritual moment of joy, forgiveness and redemption. The end to a long journey. But now let's us return to the beginning of the story and find out more about it. First of all, the story of Julian himself. Like lots of myths and legends, there are various versions, but this is the one I like best. Apparently, sometime in the first century, Julian was born to a noble family. He was a keen hunter, and one day while out hunting, he killed a doe and her baby, and he was just about to shoot the stag when the animal turned and spoke to him, making this terrible prophecy. How dare you kill me and my family when one day you will kill your own mother and father? The stag said to him. In shock, Julian decided that very day never to hunt again, and so as to avoid this terrible prophecy coming true, he left his parents' castle and headed off to serve the king, promising himself never to return or hunt again. Now, as it turns out, Julian served the king very well, and he travelled far and wide. The king was so pleased that he gave him some land, a castle, and Julian settled down and got married to the widow of a rich lord. All was going very well for him, all except his irresistible desire to go out hunting. He spoke to his wife about it, and she reasoned with him, saying that he'd waited long enough, and surely after all these years it would be fine to go out again hunting, and how could it affect his parents anyway? And he didn't really need much persuading, so off he went. Now I know what you're thinking, Julian, don't do it! You don't know how prophecies work! But of course, he couldn't hear us, so off he went to go hunting, and broke his promise. However, although he hunted all day, his guilt or lack of practice or whatever meant that he caught nothing and he was not in a great mood and he headed back for home. In the meantime, who should turn up at his house? That's right, his parents. They'd missed him terribly, you see, and had been looking for him for years and they heard they might find him here. 
They arrived at the castle to find Julian out hunting, but when they explained who they were to his wife, she welcomed them in and gave them food and told them to sleep in their very own bed so they might be rested and ready to meet Julian when he came home. This does beg the question as to how big his home or castle was, that they didn't have a guest room, but then that would ruin our story, so let's not worry about that. The weary parents lie down to rest and fall in a deep sleep. Julian returns, grumpy, from his failed hunt. (gasps) But what is this? Two figures asleep in his bed? No wonder his wife had been so keen for him to go hunting. It was merely a ruse to get him out of the house in order for her to invite her lover in. Or so he thought. Enraged with the perceived injustice, Julian drew his sword and killed the sleeping pair. Only, obviously, to find out that he had killed his parents and fulfilled the prophecy. When he realised what he had done, he is horrified. He broke his promise to the stag and paid the terrible price. He resolves to leave his comfortable life in the castle in order to repent and heads off with his wife to make penance. They walk to the banks of a great river where they set up a hospice to care for the poor and ferry them across the river. Well, one terrible night, a stranger knocks at the door. The stranger is bedraggled and sickly, but Julian welcomes him in, cares for him and the next day takes him across the river. As they are crossing, however, the stranger, once so hideous, is transformed into a beautiful angel, or Jesus, who tells Julian that he has been forgiven. Now, I'm sure you found yourself comparing this story to that of Oedipus Rex. He too kills his parents following a prophecy that despite his best efforts comes true. But unlike the pagan story of Oedipus who blinds himself, in this Christian version, Julian is forgiven and redeemed. Now, needless to say, the river is of course the River Seine and the, and the small hospice stood on the site of the church we see today. There are in fact records of a hostel and chapel on this very location dating back to the 6th century, but they were sadly destroyed by Norman invaders. The church was rebuilt between 1170 and 1240, making it one of the oldest churches in Paris. Although Notre Dame was started slightly earlier in 1163, it was not finished till much later. Saint-Germain-des-Prés is older in part, but technically at this time was not part of Paris, so... I think Julian gets it. Although St. Julian is a contemporary of Notre Dame, that is where the similarity ends. They're very, very close together and you can see one from the other. But Julian, St. Julian is small, squat even, and mixes Romanesque and Gothic features, very unlike the towering structure of Notre Dame just across the river. But don't let its unassuming stature fool you. It's a site of much history. In the 12th century, before the Sorbonne was built, the centre of learning was Notre Dame on the Ile de la Cité. Pierre Abelard, you can find out more about him in my other episodes, was a sort of hotshot intellectual and he led a massive student exodus from Notre Dame over to Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre. Thousands came with him and they essentially created what we know today as the Latin Quarter. At least we forget that those students would have been taught in Latin. 
Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre became the official seat of the newly chartered University of Paris. However, in 1524, a student riot on a major scale, they were very upset about the recent elections, of which they did not agree, saw the church being damaged and ultimately led to its abandon and decline. To preserve what was left of the building, the first two bays of the nave and south aisle were dismantled and a new facade was created, giving it a rather odd and uneven look that we see today. That was in the 17th century. During the Revolution, the building shared the fate of Saint-Séverin and other churches and became a barn, and it was ultimately earmarked for demolition in 1877 by Houseman and his motley crew who didn't care one jot for history, only making tediously straight roads. But thankfully, a general outcry from the population stopped this happening. In 1889, it became home to the Greek Catholic community, who are still there today. Since we are here, though, may I direct your attention to a few other points of interest. Outside the church, you'll see a giant sort of stone looking rather unassuming. This was discovered in 1926 and nestles quietly in the front of the church. This was originally part of the Roman road, the Rue Saint-Jacques, which runs just along, just up from the church and dates back from the 4th century. There's also, just next to this giant stone, the Miraculous Well. A miraculous well, I hear you say? Well, sort of. According to the legend, the well that can still be seen today was once within the walls of the church. You can still see a sort of blocked up door which led to it. The water of this well had healing powers apparently, and the church would sell the water. One day, however, one of the monks said that they should not sell the water as it was a gift from God and it should be freely available. They stopped selling the water, and from one day to the next, the healing powers of the water dried up. That's it for now. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If so, do tell a friend or feel free to leave me a review. It fills me with joy to get them. I'll pop some pictures up on Instagram and uh, my website, panampodcast.com. Feel free to drop me a line if you have any questions or whatever, really. And I look forward to next time. Take care. Bye.